time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, employees at two Madison area Starbucks have joined a wave of labor actions across the country. The latest federal data provides a snapshot of climate-friendly farming practices and just how often they're implemented. A businessman with Madison Roots announced his campaign to unseat U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. And in the second half, we learn the latest news from the UW campus, have a conversation with Madison's police chief, and get ready for a new crop of spring squirrels. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Wisconsin Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin has a new Republican challenger hoping to unseat her in November. Real estate developer and businessman Eric Hovde announced his campaign this morning, the Associated Press reports. In a video message, Hovde said, quote, America is slipping away, unquote and promised to focus on issues including the economy, crime, and quote, open borders. He later held his first campaign event at a downtown Madison building developed by his real estate company. It's the second time Hubdi has made a bid to represent Wisconsin in the U.S. Senate. In 2012, he came up short in the Republican primary against former Governor Tommy Thompson, who eventually lost to Baldwin in the general election. Just after Hubdi's announcement, Baldwin's campaign released a statement calling him a, quote, out-of-touch mega-millionaire, unquote, who would rubber-stamp the agenda of Republicans in Congress. Baldwin is seeking a third term in Congress and is one of two dozen Democrats who are trying to protect their seats and their party's majority in 2024. We'll have more about this story in a few minutes. Republican lawmakers in the state assembly are looking to rein in the governor's powerful veto pen. They voted today in favor of a constitutional amendment that would limit the partial veto authority the governor has when signing legislation, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The move comes after Democratic Governor Tony Evers has used that power several times to alter parts of Republican-backed state budgets, including a deletion that extended education funding for 400 years. The vote today is just the first of several steps needed to change the governor's veto powers. A constitutional amendment must pass the legislature in two consecutive sessions and then be approved by voters in a statewide election. Meanwhile, the Republican-controlled state Senate voted today to reject four of the governor's appointees to state agencies, effectively firing them, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. They included a member of the state's Natural Resources Policy Board and three people named to a panel that monitors hospitals in the state. Today's vote brings the total number of Evers appointees the Senate has rejected to 13. The governor immediately announced replacements for the positions and slammed Republicans for, quote, petty partisan politics. These new appointees will eventually be up for confirmation before the Senate as well. As the use of AI technologies becomes more commonplace, Wisconsin politicians and government employees are considering ways the tools could be used in the work of state agencies. But some workers fear there could be a push to cut human jobs and replace them with computers, the Capital Times reports. Last week, the Republican-controlled state assembly passed a measure that would require state agencies to start reporting to the legislature about how they are using AI applications and calls for agencies to start reducing jobs by the end of this decade. The Republican sponsor of the bill says the proposal is meant to help state agencies improve efficiency and supplement the work of employees, not replace them. 
but some state workers, including union representatives, say current high vacancy levels and turnover rates show the workforce is already stretched thin. They say those issues should be addressed before implementing new requirements related to AI. An arbitration panel says Wisconsin is owed $24 million from tobacco companies as part of a decades-old settlement agreement. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call released a statement today announcing this decision. The panel of former judges ruled cigarette manufacturers, including Philip Morris USA Inc. and R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, had been incorrectly withholding annual payments to the state while they were filing procedural challenges. The dispute relates to the landmark 1998 public health agreement known as the Master Settlement Agreement that Wisconsin and 45 other states reached with the tobacco companies. The winter has been unseasonably warm and dry. According to the National Weather Service, Wisconsin's snowfall this winter so far is 20 to 30 inches below average. And that means some snow-reliant businesses are struggling to stay afloat. To help affected businesses, Governor Tony Evers and U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin are working with the U.S. Small Businesses Administration to raise awareness about the agency's disaster loan program, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The loans, which can be as large as $2 million, are meant to help businesses get through emergency situations that have led to economic losses. According to statements from Evers and Baldwin, businesses in Wisconsin counties under a drought declaration currently qualify for the loans. The spring primary is today, and you have until 8 o'clock to show up at the polls and cast your vote. The primary will narrow down the candidates for nonpartisan seats. It's a sleepy start to what's likely going to be a busy election year. Two Dane County board races have three candidates and appear on today's ballot. The two candidates that receive the most votes will then appear on the ballot again in April. The first race is for the District 13 seat, which represents Madison's Regent and campus area neighborhoods on the near west side. The second race is for the District 36 seat, which represents Cottage Grove. Some Madison residents may also see candidates for the Middleton Cross Plain School Board based on district boundaries and Monona and Sun Prairie residents will narrow down candidates for their city councils. You can register to vote and find your polling place at myvote.wi.gov. And don't forget your photo ID. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. Today, baristas at two local Starbucks stores filed petitions to unionize. They're joining 19 other stores across the nation to announce a massive organizing push. WRT reporter Lila Grubb has a story. Employees at the Rimrock and Beltline Starbucks in Madison and the Monona and Broadway Starbucks in Monona filed a petition to unionize today. They're asking for representation from Starbucks Workers United, which represents baristas at hundreds of other Starbucks stores across the nation. 19 other Starbucks stores also filed petitions today with the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, the federal organization that enforces labor laws. Meanwhile, federal law judges have found over 400 labor violations at Starbucks locations across the country, including a refusal to bargain, illegal firings, and unfair wages and benefits to non-unionized workers. Esme Hill-Gorman is a barista at the Monona Starbucks. She says that they're organizing over scheduling, amongst other issues. A lot of the main issues are availability, sick time, and just a general stressful work environment. Several dozen Starbucks workers have accused the company of unfair termination due to unionizing attempts and providing benefits like higher wages to non-unionized stores. Employees are demanding that Starbucks seize its unlawful union-busting campaign and also bargain a contract in good faith. 
I think having a say in our day-to-day work lives is going to make a huge difference in our partner morale. The two local Starbucks are among three dozen stores across 14 states to file petitions today, marking the largest single day of union filings for Starbucks workers. Two other Starbucks stores in Madison are already unionized, one on State Street and one on the Capitol Square. Baristas at four other locations across Wisconsin in Stevens Point, Appleton, Green Bay, and Oak Creek are also unionized. An effort to unionize at a Fitchburg location in 2022 failed. Workers at Starbucks have also successfully unionized more than any other company this century at over 400 stores across 42 states. Evan McKenzie, a barista and member of Starbucks Workers United, says that they're hopeful that their employer will respond to the nationwide pressure and make a change. We're all kind of anticipating very soon for there to be budging from the company. And I think it's going to be a really great day when it happens. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Lila Grubb. Sustainable farm advocates have been trying for years to get more producers to adopt climate-friendly practices. Policy experts now have new data that helps get them get a better sense of how the movement is faring. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection explains. Those who research farming trends are poring over new federal data that only comes around every five years. The latest information helps some organizations check the pulse of conservation efforts. This month, the USDA released the new Census of Agriculture. Initial reaction focused on the loss of farms around the country and consolidation within the industry. Mike Lavender with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition says there's also numbers detailing how much farmland is being used for climate-friendly practices. He notes there were some bright spots, but also room for opportunity. Some of the data that we're seeing within the census reinforces for us that in so many ways it is about access to programs within USDA or information, making sure that we can use all of those avenues to drive adoption in the way that we know there is demand for. Conservation data examples include an increase in the use of no-till practices, while the number of farmers using rotational grazing is down. The agricultural industry faces pressure to improve soil health and reduce its carbon footprint under the threat of climate change. Between 2017 and 2022, Wisconsin farmers boosted key conservation work, including the planting of cover crops. And while the data is new, Lavender cautions it doesn't capture how farmers are responding to new incentives from the federal government. This is certainly pre-Inflation Reduction Act investment data. So while this is, of course, accurate and really important to wrap our heads around, there's even newer data that we're getting from Inflation Reduction Act funding demand that it's important to take into account. The IRA provided nearly $20 billion to bolster funding for popular conservation programs. The USDA reported that applications exceeded the extra funding that was set aside. Ag researchers have noted while there's demand for these incentives, farmers have often faced barriers to being approved, with only one in four applicants being successful. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Today, businessman Eric Hovde officially announced his campaign for the United States Senate. He'll be running as a Republican against incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, who is seeking a third term. J.R. Ross is editor of WisPolitics, a multimedia news outlet that covers politics, the government, and business. Earlier this evening, he shared insight about this race with WRT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, J.R. Oh, thanks for having me. So I understand that you attended Hovde's campaign announcement just in the last hour. Can you tell us what you heard tonight? Uh, He struck a theme of an American dream that is starting to fail, getting harder for people to achieve, a country going the wrong direction. 
He called the pullout from Afghanistan the way it was handled, perhaps the most embarrassing day of his life, and he promised to bring people together to fix these issues. Uh, he took a couple of digs at Timmy Baldwin, the U.S. Senator from Madison, saying that, you know, she's got a record he's going to hold her accountable for, but vowed not to get in the politics of destru- personal destruction and, and make this about an ideas kind of campaign. And so I understand that he's been previewing this run for a while. What has Hubdi been up to for the last few months? Laying the foundation, hiring people, putting a team together. I reported a few weeks ago that he you know, got a campaign manager and general consultant. He's got his TV t- people were on board. So basically, he was laying the foundation. The idea is that somebody like Hubdi can do what Ron Johnson did back in 2010, which was Ron Johnson didn't really kind of make a decision about running until probably March of 2010, probably announced in April. By May, he'd won the endorsement of the state Republican Party, and he was off and running and beat Russ Feingold that fall. Now, that was 14 years ago. It's a different world than it was back then. Hubby has personal wealth. The expectation among insiders I talked to is that he will spend a lot of that money to kind of prime the pump, essentially, to remind people who he is, get back up on air with TV ads to launch this campaign, and that he's going to try and do a model, kind of like the Ron Johnson model, and take a long-time incumbent by this kind of concentrated campaign starting now going through November. As you mentioned, Hufti is a Madison area businessman, and this isn't his first foray into politics. What is his background? So he ran for U.S. Senate in 2012, finished a surprisingly strong second to Tommy Thompson in that Republican primary. But he's flirted with running almost every cycle since then. He thought about running for governor in 2022, flirted with other offices. So he's kind of teased before that he might run again. This is the first time he's actually pulled the trigger. So as he kind of delayed a bit getting back into this campaign, people kind of wonder, okay, is he really going to do it this time? What is his his business background? What do people know him for? In Wisconsin, he's known, obviously, for Hubby Properties, family business. He's helped grow that company significantly. They do a lot of development. He had his launch today at Ovation, that building in West Johnson that he and his brother helped do. But Democrats are going to knock him often as a California bank owner. Uh, he's got this bank in California that he has got an ownership stake in, and they are going to try to portray him as somebody who isn't really tied to Wisconsin, but is kind of running for office because he's an opportunity rather than he cares about the state. Now, during his launch, his older brother tried to kind of rebuff some of that criticism, noting that Eric went to school at Madison East High School. He was born here, I believe. He went to UW-Madison, talked about how they're both Packers shareholders, bemoaned uh, recent losses by the Wisconsin Badgers men's basketball team. So saying that, you know, we're from, we are from here. This is our home. And, you know, it's not right to say we're just not really from Madison, from Wisconsin. So you touched on this a bit earlier, but can you walk us through some of his main campaign priorities? Well, he talked about basically restoring this American dream kind of idea, that he is unhappy with the direction of the country, talked about defunding the police as the worst idea perhaps he's ever heard, that that's not working securing the border, that there have been 9 to 12 million people who've come across the border illegally since Biden took office, that there's not enough housing or resources to help people who are already here in the country, let alone take on that kind of an influx of people. You know, a lot of the big kind of core Republican issues that are animating primary voters right now, those kinds of things. So I'm curious, too, have any other Republicans shown an interest in joining the Senate race, potentially sending it to a primary? There is a student at UW-Stevens Point who is in the race. There's also a Trempolo County supervisor um, out in western Wisconsin who has formerly launched campaign. But most attention has been on Scott Mayer. He's a Franklin businessman that has been talking about a run. He's kind of pushed it off several times whether he's going to make a decision. He has said that Eric Hovey's decision won't affect his, but it's become pretty clear that the National Republican Senatorial Committee really wants Hovey to be the person who's trying to kind of send a message that they're behind him. 
right ahead of his formal launch today, there was a statement from the NRSC chair and making clear that National Republicans are backing Hubdi. There was a short digital ad you know, knocking Tammy Baldwin, all the signs of, hey, Eric Hubdi is the one we're going to get behind and trying to tell Scott Mayer, you know, this is not your time. We don't want you in because if Scott Mayer gets in, both he and Hubdi are wealthy. The expectation is they can both spend personal money, uh, write checks bigger than I can, for example, and beat each other up at the primary. If that were to happen, it would help Timmy Baldwin because whenever you have a contentious primary that the winner comes out bruised and battered and possibly broke financially, that's good for the incumbent, not great for the challengers. And go back to 2012, you know, Tommy Thompson uh, had a surprisingly tr- strong challenge in that primary from Hubby and others. He emerged in that primary without a lot of resources, and Timmy Baldwin used that opportunity to really define him. If you recall that election from 2012, the tagline that Timmy Baldwin had was that Tommy Thompson wasn't for us anymore. And they burned that in immediately after the primary, that he wasn't the, the Tommy Thompson you remember, and it worked. It was a really well-done ad campaign and helped really uh, help her beat Tommy Thompson, who was, at the time, viewed as like this you know, really popular former governor who had a name ID on anybody else who ever happened in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin is a battleground state, and this Senate race could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate moving forward. Can you walk us through that? If you look at the national rankings of which states matter the most, we're not the top three or four or five. So West Virginia has been represented by Democrat. That's pretty much already been written off as a flip because Joe Manchin's not running. Republicans are expected to take that one. The next tier is Ohio and Montana. They both have Democratic incumbents who are in pretty red states. They've won before, overcoming the top of the ticket performance, but can they do it again? Then you kind of get into, you know, uh, open seat in Michigan, an incumbent Democrat in Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, somewhere in that tier. It depends how you find the tiers, but it's probably like around seven or eight, the top 10 to watch from a way to flip. So the question becomes, how many resources will we see in Wisconsin and how much our priorities are going to be? We also just saw, for example, Larry Hogan, a popular former Republican governor in Maryland, announcing for U.S. Senate. That could put that seat in play, possibly. So, People think that there's like an endless amount of money out there, and it seems like every campaign there is, but it's actually kind of a finite resource. There's only so much to go around, and the question becomes, where will these national forces put it? Will Republicans nationally bank on Wisconsin as a true pickup opportunity? Will they say, look, we're better off in Ohio and Montana, maybe going to Nevada. Wisconsin's going to be like something where we'll play, but it's not going to be the focus of our attention. Oh, by the way, Timmy Baldwin finished 2023 with $8 million bucks in the bank. So there's some people I talk to around campaigns who wonder if national republics are banking on Eric Hovde kind of getting this campaign off the ground and taking a wait-and-see approach. If things are going well for them or looks like an opportunity, then they'll invest more here. If there's not, they may go somewhere else. That's all still kind of up in the air, just what kind of resources we'll see in Wisconsin and how contested this, this race will be. I see. Okay, so from a purely like resource perspective, he has an advantage in that he has a lot of his own finances to back him up. He may not need as much support nationally. Possibly, but see what happens, though, is look at Tim Michaels in 2022 running for governor. There was an expectation that, well, this guy can write a big check to get his campaign going. And then he originally said, I'm not going to take any donations. Now, he changed that position after the primary, but it's hard when you're very wealthy and put a lot of your own money in a campaign to convince regular donors to invest in you. You're like, well, why can't you pay for everything? You've got so much money. So it's a, a double-edged sword. It can really get you off the ground. But how do you convince people to give? Because Tammy Baldwin, for example, has got a great small-dollar donor network. She's raised money nationally before. She's a priority for a lot of interest groups who care about her getting reelected. And those small-dollar donations can really fuel a campaign in a big way. 
can Eric Hovde, you know, write a big check to carry him through all to match all of that, or will he be successful in attracting attention from donors despite giving um, put a lot of his own money in the campaign? Same time, Scott Mayer, if he gets in, will those two wealthy businessmen write a bunch of big checks, drain their resources, and leave them in a bad spot come post primary? I think that covers all of my questions. But is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything they should look out for? Uh, maybe a lot of TV ads. <laughs> I mean, like with the presidential race, we are once again going to be in the eye of the storm. And one of the big questions for Baldwin is she won by almost 11 points in 2018, did much better than Tony Evers did in 2018 at the top of the ticket. And people have talked about, you know, how well she did in that campaign. But it's a different environment this year. You have a presidential race, not a gubernatorial race, top of the ticket. Will Joe Biden, who all sides are even the nominee for Democrats, will he be even with Donald Trump, who by all sides right now is even the nominee for Republicans? Will they be even? Will one eke ahead by several points? If Joe Biden and Donald Trump are even on Election Day this November, or who are the two candidates are? Timmy Baldwin, probably the favorite to win for people I talk to. But if it's Biden v. Trump and Biden craters, let's say he loses by four, five, six points. That gets tougher to overcome. You know, there are a lot of ticket splitters anymore. So it's really interesting to watch not only how Baldwin does, but how that relationship works between the top of the ticket with her race and the presidential race. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, JR. Anytime, best of luck. That was JR Ross, editor of WIS Politics. He shared his perspective on Eric Hovde's run for U.S. Senate against incumbent Senator Tammy Baldwin. According to Ross, a lot is still up in the air, namely, whether Hovde will have any competition from his own party, and how much financial support the Madison businessman will receive over the course of his campaign. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. But now it's Cardinal Call, a segment featuring news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper at UW-Madison. This week, host Oliver Gerhardt talks with Daily Cardinal staff writer Ella Gladysayan about a recent proposal by state Republicans to increase campus funding for initiatives that promote free speech and viewpoint diversity. Hello and welcome to Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of UW-Madison campus news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your host, Oliver Gearhurst. In January, Republican lawmakers introduced a proposal to increase funding to The Wicked, the Wisconsin Institute for Citizenship and Civil Dialogue, an office focusing on free speech programming and viewpoint diversity on college campuses. Today we're joined by Daily Cardinal staff writer Ella Gledison to discuss Wicked and the reasons for its funding increase. Thanks for being here, Ella. Thanks for having me. So first off, what is Wicked? So, yeah, like you said, Wicked is the Wisconsin Institute for Citizenship and Civil Dialogue. So it was created by the Board of Regents in 2022, and its mission is to provide resources, opportunities, and support for teaching and learning on viewpoint diversity and freedom of expression uh, around UW campuses. So what was it created in response to? It was created in response to this free speech survey, and the findings, um, the findings showed that the level of comfort students had with expressing their viewpoint without filter 
was different based on political affiliation. More than 64% of conservative students reported feeling pressure to censor their speech or conform to a professor's viewpoints compared to only about 20% of liberal students. So some officials at the university saw this as a problem that could signal a formal limitation on free speech rights and created the office. Others argue that it's more about self-censorship. There's some controversy, some conversation on that. So how is the funding being directed towards Wicked being used to promote free speech? A pair of Republican lawmakers, uh, Representative Scott Johnson and uh, Senator Rachel Cabral-Guevara, introduced a proposal in January to allocate 500000 towards the office annually. And then they have uh, like a handshake agreement with UW President Jay Rothman to match that funding. So it'll be $1 million going towards it this wow. year if it passes. Their priorities for 2024 are to create a steering committee, establish a board of advisors, appoint university liaisons. Um, They want to set up a wicked website, establish relationships with university partners, oversee grant distribution, organize programming and workshops, and hire a full-time director. So those are some of the core priorities that they spell out. What does self-censorship mean? Yeah, so self-censorship is something that we all do every day. So it's not just about political opinions, but it's what we do where we obviously we don't say everything that pops into our head. So if we make judgments about people or have a certain viewpoint that we know is going to be controversial or could cause hurt or harm, we just automatically filter those things out. Well, it's more of a conscious choice to filter what we say around people to not cause problems, really. We don't want to hurt ourselves. We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to cause arguments, etc. So we choose to kind of put a filter over what we say. So in your article, one of your sources makes the distinction between the right to free speech and a right to feel welcome. Can you explain this distinction? I spoke with um, former UW-Madison political science professor Howard Schwaber about this issue. And what he kind of said is that a right to feel welcome is not obviously not spelled out in the U.S. Constitution. There's no place in the First Amendment that says that we all must have an opinion that needs to feel perfectly welcome and not be challenged. And part of healthy free speech is that our viewpoints can get challenged and there can be civil dialogue and open discussion. Talking through difficult, controversial issues with that being such a core part of free speech and such a core part of civil dialogue, it's kind of interesting that the Wisconsin Institute for Citizenship and Civil Dialogue formed because some students feel a greater need to self-censor. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of interesting that it kind of formed in response to some students feeling like their opinions aren't welcome and don't like their viewpoints being challenged when that's really a very healthy part of free speech. Do you feel that Wicked is sort of an attempt to legalize a right to feel welcome? Wicked is more about providing like resources, support, and training and programming about viewpoint diversity. So bringing in speakers from across the political spectrum and providing information to students on opinions different from their own, maybe. There's been talk about conducting like another free speech survey in the future, like the one from 2022. But Wicked doesn't, doesn't have the power to make laws that say that students need to have their voices feel welcome on campus. What they can do is provide programming and sport and speakers, but I don't really think it's as much of an attempt to completely, you know, put into law that students must feel welcome. And any law that dictates who you must make feel welcome in your university 
any law that says that from the government would be both unconstitutional and just completely bizarre. How does this issue of the Wisconsin Institute for Citizenship and Civil Dialogue connect to the deal between Assembly Speaker Voss and the Board of Regents this past December? Well, in November, a deal was passed to essentially cut DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in uh, the UW system in exchange for employee pay raises and funding for building projects and a few other like curriculum things. Uh, so this deal was negotiated between Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and members of the UW Board of Regents, specifically UW President Jay Rothman. And so this deal cut diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in exchange for funding and pay raises for the university. It also took away some of the supports and the programming and workshops that encouraged diversity and inclusion and um, acceptance for other students. So it's kind of interesting that this is happening at the same time as this push to make, you know, conservative opinions feel more welcome. And at the same time, there are kind of pushes to make minority students feel less welcome on campus. So is there anything else that you learned over the course of your reporting that stuck out to you? I guess as I was working on this piece, I learned more about some instances on campus last year of hate speech and discriminatory speech and expression. So there was the video last spring of a UW student saying offensive discriminatory things towards black people and black students. And there was a lot of backlash from the university there. Um, A lot of students argue that she should be expelled, give some accountability, and the university argued that they have no ability to do that. And law experts kind of confirmed that as well. So there's not much that the university could do, yet this still hurt a very large number of students, and this speech was still hateful and racist. It's kind of difficult to think about how, as students are going through this, Diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are facing challenges and cuts, and it kind of leaves a lot of us wondering like, what supports are in place for students who may be impacted by hateful and discriminatory speech. Thanks for coming on the Cardinal Call this week, Ella. Thanks for having me. In other campus news, a campus police officer shoved a protesting student during a confrontation at a campus career fair Tuesday, February 13th. The protesters were there to protest the presence of companies which supply military arms to Israel at the fair. A UW-Madison spokesperson said the university is currently reviewing the incident. In other news, longtime chief of the UW-Madison Police Department, Kristen Roman, resigned Monday, February 12th, with Brent Pleisch being named interim chief of police until a permanent replacement can be found, a process for which the university has plans to conduct a nationwide search. A reason has not been provided for the resignation. In other news, the university's Board of Regents has authorized a reconstruction project for the Camp Randall Sports Center, known colloquially as the Shell. Many students, especially those on the track team, are disappointed by this decision because the facility features what many feel is the best indoor track on campus. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by UW-Madison student journalists. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com.
Earlier this month, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes outlined the city's 2023 crime statistics in his State of Public Safety address. On today's public affair, host Ali Muldrow sat down with the chief to learn more. We'll air an excerpt of their conversation now. To hear the rest, visit our website at wrtfm.org. You took on this role at a time when police were not particularly popular um, in the conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement um, and even in the conversation locally around kind of racial disparities and what the presence of police have meant um, for different people in this community, particularly for the black community in Madison. Can you talk a little bit, you've had a lot of success um, in in addressing, you know, areas of crime, um, in reducing crime and being proactive and preventative. Talk to me a little bit about the work you all are doing to address racial disparities in terms of arrests and incarceration. Yeah, well, the first thing I will tell you that in, in, you know, in 2020, you know, policing wasn't relatively popular with any person of color, including myself. You know, I came from civilian oversight. I was in civilian oversight for about four months before I came here. And, um, you know, my internal voice or, or, or my God was speaking to me saying that, hey, your work is not done and you've dedicated, you know, 20 plus years of your life to this and, and you know, had worked to study and understand uh, policing and law and you got to get back in there. And um, I had applied for Madison before um, I went to Chicago and things were quiet. I didn't understand what was going on here in Madison. I now know why they didn't want to bring me in until things kind of settled in a little bit. But when I got here, I started trying to understand what people were feeling. Cause that's that, you have to start there first. Like why are people feeling the way they're feeling? And racial disparities was one of those things. Um, my, PhD, my PhD dissertation is in racial disparities. And so the first thing you have to understand is how you measure that. And we haven't really clearly uh, come up with the consensus about that. The newspaper measures it one way, scientists measure it another way, um, but the people measure it by the eye test or the field test. And if it doesn't feel right to them, if it doesn't look right to them, then they're going to see disparity in that. But we've done um, a lot of things, I think, uh, to address that. Uh, Number one, um, you know, we have a clear and distinct message about when and where we police. We measure dosage. They have a meeting with me uh, every month at the end of the month. I call it an accountability meeting. And we look at where we're policing and what we're doing there. We also are getting better at understanding the different uh, strategies to reduce crime. And some police agencies, maybe even here, you know, years ago, the idea was go somewhere, stop someone, make some arrests. Like we, we know that those things have a very limited effect uh, on on particular crime, even even uh, looking at uh, violent crime. You know, there's a small number of people who are responsible for that. And there's a way to do that. Um, when I was in Salisbury in three years, we were able to reduce crime to a 20 year low while also reducing arrests. And there's a way to do that. But it does in, it does involve understanding and identifying who are the people who need the services the most. And I have some great um, I think great success stories that don't involve arrests. But one thing that I did find when I got here is that, you know, we did have uh, a public health um, department, which is kind of different. A lot of departments don't have that. And although they're not under my control, I can't tell them what to do. We give them referrals. And so what we're saying is this is a person that may be moving toward crime. 
the the maybe the last thing I'll say just to be a little bit more concise is that the best way to reduce disparities is not to have to arrest people. The best way to not to arrest people is to prevent crime. So if you have a crime prevention strategy, you should see some of the benefits of that um, unless you have someone that's just <laughs> prolific and, and, and are committing crimes. But when we're telling people that, you know, in order for a crime to occur, you have to have a target. So let's not make ourselves targets. Let's figure out how to put things up so people don't take them. Let's figure out how to make sure that we're guarding our things and, and we have people in place and we're reducing um, the opportunities to break into a business or, or, or what have you. And then um, we understand addiction here, I think, in our department. We have a program called the Madison Area Recovery Initiative, and it is a pre-arrest program. So a lot of times, as you know, you know, sometimes people's behavior is a reflection of um, their substance abuse. And for years in policing, we just took people to jail. I have my, my mother has a lot of uncles, a lot of brothers. I have a lot of uncles and probably almost all of them were have been just as involved at some point um, because of, of alcoholism. That was certainly rampant in my family. Um, not a lot of drug addiction, but a lot of alcohol addiction. I did have one uncle who who struggled with drug addiction and uh, he committed one crime. He spent five years of his life in prison for his first offense. And since then, obviously, he's, he's a business owner doing doing very well. But my, my story, my family is not unique to the world. And I bring that, that worldview, I hope, and I bring those experiences with me uh, in my daily walk as a police chief. Do you think about, you know, 20 years from now, how you will know that you rose to the occasion of of this moment? What are the the results you really want to see for this community? What is the work you really want to accomplish um, as you navigate your career here in Madison? Yeah, I actually do think about that because people ask me that all the time, uh, especially internally. Like, what do you what do you want your legacy to be? What are you trying to do? And I think for me, I want people to say that I advance policing in Madison. I allow people to think differently about problems. Uh, I was open to hearing different approaches to to crime. I thought that police officers were public servants first and law enforcement officers second. That I thought that if one person felt uh, that we weren't doing a good job, they were important enough to listen to. I want people to say that, you know, he lived downtown and the people who were unsheltered knew his name and they called each other by name. I want people to say that I worked uh, for him or I work in the police department when he was here and I got a chance to educate myself, go to conferences, learn what people were doing better. And I brought that back to the agency and that my voice was heard. And so overall that I advanced policing in Madison and that our department is going in the right direction. I cannot thank you enough for joining me here today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Thank you for tuning in for my conversation with Police Chief Barnes. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg has the scoop on squirrel gestation. Believe it or not, baby season is right around the corner. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I want to talk about squirrel gestation. Yes, that's a very strange topic, but it's actually a really exciting topic because, believe it or not, it's almost baby season. And I want to talk about it today because we have a very special patient that came into our clinic this week. And it was an Eastern gray squirrel who was found unbalanced and unable to walk very well near a home that had been helping feed squirrels throughout the winter, which of course lots of people in our area do, and was found to have a bit of a head tilt and was having trouble walking. And they were very worried about the balance and whether you know she would be able to escape predation. And so we decided it might be the best thing to have the squirrel brought in for an evaluation. So they did put out a small live trap in their yard to see if they would be able to get the squirrel for any reason which, by the way, there are live trap laws here in Wisconsin that do require that you deem an animal a nuisance if you don't have a trapper's license. In this particular case, this was kind of within those gray areas of, well, what else do you do or how else do you catch a squirrel? And they were able to bait it into this small type of enclosure with some food and able to bring it in. So this Eastern gray squirrel does have some ambulation issues and we had her uh, on supportive care for a couple of days. Uh, We monitored her progress inside in our treatment area where she had a cage with fresh food and a nest box. And then lo and behold, on our regular vet checks, we decided to do some imaging and what did we find? But she has four little babies inside that are already growing. So that's really fun. And it reminded me of a story of another time we had that happen. But first I'll start by saying that Eastern gray squirrels are one of those that do breed about twice a year in our area. So usually the first time that they mate is gonna be in December to February, and then they mate a second time in May to June. So we have what we call, uh, as rehabilitators, two waves of gray squirrels that come through. And so we're gonna be seeing our first ones, obviously very soon if we already have this first female that is pregnant. And it takes about 40 to 45 days, the average is about 44 days, for a female to give birth. And usually the litters are somewhere between two to six babies. They are tiny and pink and hairless. They can't hear or see yet for quite a while. And usually the first litter is gonna be in a tree cavity somewhere because obviously winter is quite harsh here in Wisconsin. And then in the spring or summertime breeding where it's a little warmer then they typically might use like a leaf nest, uh, which is called a dray. Otherwise, they do like to go moving between the cavity dens and the leaf nests. Um, There's some great information out there if you wanna know a little more, but they will move their babies in case of predators or if there's parasites that, you know, infest the nest like fleas or ticks or mange mites for some reason. So they usually have a couple of different nests back up in those potential conflict situations. So we're just about to see this happen here with our gray squirrels in Wisconsin from what we can tell. But it reminded me of my favorite story, which was uh, back in 2016, believe it or not, when we admitted another squirrel, but this time it was a Southern flying squirrel. And it was admitted because it was found over uh, on the kind of downtown West Hildale area with a head tilt, same as our other gray squirrel here. And you might be asking, why do they get a head tilt? Well, sometimes we're not sure if it's a physical injury where, you know, they accidentally fall from a tree or, you know, they get blown somewhere, especially flying squirrels that are flying. And maybe there's impact trauma that causes a head tilt. It could be a lot of other things, but those are usually the ones that actually recover, the ones that maybe have some sort of physical trauma rather than something parasitic or infectious. So this flying squirrel came in in April and it was only four days later, no, five days later, really, that 
we found babies in their nest box and flying squirrels are so cute. They're so tiny. They only weighed one gram and she had three little babies in care inside the nest box. And so these itty bitty one gram tiny pink naked flying squirrels were probably the most adorable thing that I've ever seen in my whole life. And that was really awesome to be able to uh, let her have a safe space and rehabilitation to raise her babies while she was also recovering from her own trauma. And it just shows the importance of rehabilitators, honestly, you know, having a space available so that someone can take that animal and give them that chance at, you know, producing young and having a life because otherwise they wouldn't have made it in the wild. So our little flying squirrel friends uh, took until about August until they were independent from mom and we were able to release all of them, which is amazing. And they are also one of the same species that will breed more than once a year. So in their particular situation, it's usually about 40 days for a gestation period. And then their average is one to six young. And the cool thing, uh, fun fact for you, is that flying squirrels live longer than eastern gray squirrels typically. Although I would say that the maximum that an eastern gray squirrel in the wild has been found is somewhere around 13 years old. But on average, eastern gray squirrels only live about three years. And then flying squirrels actually live typically five to six years in the wild. So it's probably because of how well small flying squirrels are able to hide and evade predators in comparison to the eastern gray squirrels, but it's hard to say. But they both live in the 12 to 13 years maximum range, but they are definitely all around. Eastern gray squirrels you see in the day, southern flying squirrels you see at night. So that is a little bit about squirrel gestation and that breeding season is coming up here very soon and you never know what you're gonna find and we should always expect the unexpected. So if you do find any animals that are sick or injured or you're not sure and you just want us to take a look at a picture or a video, give us a call at 608-287-3235 and check out our website at www.giveshelter.org. Thanks for listening here today on WORT about squirrels. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporter was Lila Grubb. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Oliver Gerhartz, and a public affair host, Ollie Muldrow. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produces newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. And subscribe when you're on the hunt for new podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopewell. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.